The Aggressive Life exists for one reason. It's not to give me an outlet to talk. I've got plenty of outlets to talk. It's not to get me to hang out with interesting people because I've always had some interesting people in my life, even if they weren't very well known. It's not to build my name or brand. It exists to help people like you get pushed and like me get pushed into living lives of healthy aggression. Well, what is aggressiveness? It's a willingness to move, to stop waiting and to take action. It is the common thread running through every life that works, every life of meeting. It's the secret sauce. But we live in a world where it's much easier to be passive, where it's much easier to be a victim, where it's much easier to wait for someone else to make the first move, where it's much easier to complain about what somebody else isn't doing or somebody is doing to me and all that stuff. And it just doesn't work. We're coming against that. We're trying to build a tribe of people who aren't okay with life just happening to them. They flip that around. They happen to their life. They grab it by the horns. They wrestle it down and they survive to fight another day. Aggressive people come in all shapes, all sizes, all occupations, all colors, all economies. And on this podcast, we engage them in conversation in hopes that their lives and words will push you to take action. Now, a few weeks ago, this podcast turned two, two, two years old. It's hard to believe. In the past year, we've connected with some inspiring and aggressive guests. Today, we're going to re-engage with some of my favorites and experience some of my can't-miss moments from year two. If this podcast has been a help to you, do us a huge favor. Actually, do somebody else a huge favor. Would you please share it with someone? Would you please give us a rating and a review? The number of ratings and positive reviews do not match the number of downloads and anecdotal evidence we have. So please help us get the word out. It helps us help more people. That means more people being introduced to the secret of a life that works. Healthy aggression. So through a difficult year, you stuck with us. I don't take that for granted. I thank you very, very much. We've got some big things coming as well in year three. But for now, some of my favorite moments from year two. Rob Kenny, YouTube's father. Late last summer, I connected with Rob Kenny. He's an incredible man, aggressively chasing a wild idea. Be a dad for people who don't have one. How might he do that? Well, through YouTube. What started as a simple DIY video for things like shaving or how to jumpstart your car or fix a running toilet has expanded into a movement. At last check, Rob's YouTube channel, Dad, How Do I, has 3.5 million, million followers. In our conversation, we talk about where the idea for these videos came from and what he hopes they do for people who engage them. Let's talk a little bit more about your about your channel. Where did the idea originally come from on this? Yeah, it's something I've wanted to do actually for a, a number of years. I talked to my daughter. You know, I have two adult children, and we talk all the time about adulting type stuff. And I didn't have a dad from when I was fourteen on up, and so I learned various things along the way raising my kids. But also, you know, I learned how to tie a tie from my my roommate um, when I was twenty. Um, and just picked things up along the way. And I thought, you know, uh, and I go to YouTube for it. It's a pretty good resource, but there's a lot of bells and whistles that go off, you know, subscribe, do this, do that. And, you know, you spend a lot of time for that one minute nugget. And so I was trying to make my channel kind of a one-stop place where you could come and get not only tie a tie, but how to check your oil and how to do kind of the whole thing 
early on, I could see that it was starting to resonate on a level that I had no idea because like you were saying, you know, uh, people were, people were just watching my videos and crying just because I'm a dad shaving, <laughs> you know, it, it's not, and it wasn't because I was so bad at shaving or so good at it. It was that they'd never had that relationship with a dad. So it just, they were bawling, just watching me tie a tie, you know, or changing a tire. I get so many emotional responses from from people saying, I've been thirsty, thirsting for so long and I feel like I finally drank for the first time. Just like, listen, just watching me do something. So pretty, wow. pretty remarkable. I had no idea. I thought I was just gonna be showing people how to do stuff. I, I hadn't thought about the shaving one. That, that just brought back a massive memory to me. My dad, when I was a youngster, you know, he would shave in the morning, of course, like every do dad does, old school, straight razor, you know? And I would sit on the toilet and just watch him shave mesmerized i just wanted to be with him yeah i would just i would just watch it and uh, i never crossed my mind that yeah the majority of today's culture has never seen a man do that let alone a dad do that in you know a lot of comedies dads are buffoons you know that are uh, to be made fun of and i i think people are seeing wait a second this is a guy that he's relatable and you know um and he's trying to help me what and he's not yelling at me and you know uh, so um i'm hoping to yeah again encourage dads to to step up but also to help people understand that there there's a different way you know you can you have choices in your life and i've also shared too when you're holding your baby i'd like to think for the most part people are make, promising them the world right and then as your kid gets a little older, you start, you know, you have a bad day at work, you're dealing with all kinds of different things, you know, you're navigating life and you can kind of get off track. So one of the things I want to do is maybe have dads come up with a mission statement early on so that you, this is what I'm, my core principles that I want to stick to as we navigate life. So that if I get off, I want to, we don't want to do that. That's not what we're good at. We want to stick with this. And I think, you know, I'm all about trying to keep things as simple as possible. I'm, fairly simple myself. So it probably helps. I think there, there's just so many simple things out there that people have not picked up because we're a relationally fractured society. And it's just sad that we've got to pick these things up on the web. It's wonderful that the web exists. Wonderful. It's sad that we have to pick them up on the web because we're, we're void of people teaching us things. But man, I'm just, I'm just excited. There's a guy out there who saw opportunity and wanted to bless people and did a way to go, Rob. Seriously, <laughs> this, this is called the, this is called the aggressive life. This, you, you, you are a perfect example of the kind of things I'm hoping more people do. You saw an, an opportunity and you just did it. You just did it. And what do you know? More stuff has happened in your life than you would have ever, ever planned before. Have you ever thought about having 2.4 million people hang on your every word? Have you ever thought about that, Rob Kenny? <laughs> no, if you look at my videos, you'll know that I didn't think that because in my <laughs> in my shaving video, my shaving video was my second video, and in the back I got a um, a prescription bottle. I'm not playing a role. This is me, and so it, it hurts a little bit more if somebody says you know, if they pick, start picking you apart. People, you say people on the internet are negative. No, <laughs> Michelle Wahlberg, badass survivor. Alone is one of my favorite TV shows right now, and Michelle Wahlberg just might be my favorite competitor. <laughs> On the show, she survived 48 days completely alone in the subarctic with only 10 items. Nowadays, she's a hunting guide and survival expert in rural Canada, and midway through our conversation, I asked her a question about the half-million-dollar cash prize all the competitors of Alone were playing to win. 
Her answer revealed the connection between wilderness survival and the life of aggression back in the real world. This is one of the things that I, I kept thinking when I when I saw the episode. Just about everybody, I don't think you, or at least you don't wear it on your sleeve as much as some of the other contestants. Just about everybody just said again and again, I'm in this for the money. I need this money for my family. I'm doing this so I can get my family to a new place. One contestant saying, I haven't been able to, I can't afford to take a bus trip a bus ride to go see my grandfather. Right. Um, I mean, on, and I think sitting there, I think to myself, man, bus fare isn't that much. Yeah. I know, I know, I know I'm not personally couch surfing. I'm not dealing with hunger. God's been very, very good to me. I'm very, very financially blessed. I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, but, but I'm going like, it doesn't take that much effort to get money for a bus pass. Right. And I'm not cracking on that person specifically. I'm not at all. I'm just saying this was such a consistent theme with everyone. I just kept thinking, these people are, for the most part, the baddest ass of the baddest ass. The level of mm -hmm. um, initiative that's shown by everybody, the level of fortitude, the level of ingenuity, the level of uh, deal, being able to deal with pain, the ability to deal with setbacks, all of that with just about everybody was like nine or ten and yet you got a bunch of people that have just not figured out how to make money in the regular world. Why do you think that is? Have you thought about this much? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, to be fair, yeah, I wanted to win. I wanted the money, too, obviously. Like somebody's going to give well, me. And to be fair, like, Michelle, to, you know, well, and, but, well yeah. Michelle, to be, to be fair, to do the show for $500,000 <laughs> is fine. If they ask me, if yeah. you're out there, all of you, if you ask me, I'll take it. <laughs> I'm yeah. not saying I would win, but I would I would do it. But the, so the five hundred thousand dollars is definitely yeah. a, a, a good incentive. Yeah. No, no shame in anybody. But it was it was the backstory of person after person yeah. just being in financial uh, ruin and disaster. Yeah, you know I I can't speak for what you know how other people live their lives. Um, I grew up really dirt poor, right? Like no shoes, you know, till school time. Basically, you run the summer barefoot as you're growing. So. We didn't have money for extra things. So I grew up, my dad taught me, you know, how to hunt and fish and trap. And, and really, my dad never, ever told me that I couldn't do something, right? My mom died when I was seven. I looked after a lot of stuff. I helped out with my sisters. I, I fished for sustenance. We, we hunted, you know, all of those things. But my dad never told me I couldn't do something because it was impossible. You know, no, I didn't, we didn't have money, but it was about, if you want something, then I guess you better go out and help yourself. If we need firewood and we need firewood split, I guess you better go and get it. You know, if you want the garden because you want produce, I guess you better go out and get it. So later in life here, like, you know, I'm, I'm busting my hump. I work all of the time, every day for yeah, financial gain, for personal gain, for self-fulfillment, you know, all of those things. Because I don't want to be poor. You know, there's nothing wrong with being poor, but I've been there. I've done that. I can write a book on, on, you know, all of those things that happen when you're poor. I didn't want that anymore. I don't want it now. No, I don't want to be, I don't need to be a multimillionaire and driving a Porsche. I just want to be able to pay my bills easily and comfortably. I want to be able to send my kid to a good school if he wants to go. I want to be able to send him to the dentist without, 
you know, going, ooh, can't pay that bill, you know, but he needs it. So I'm going to have to sacrifice in other areas, you know. Um, I don't consider myself poor now, and I haven't for a long time. And I don't know if that's just, like, you know, my mindset changed. Um, and then my money followed it, I guess, is probably what happened. That so do you, think, do you think survival skills translate into um, making ends meet financially, or do you think they're two totally separate things? I know. I think they're related. I think for, for me, it certainly is. So I learned how to do with less. So if you, you know, you look there on my house right now, you'd see an old leather used couch that I bought, you know, a couch in a love seat off of somebody. You know, I've got everyday normal things. I just try to look after them. I don't go out shopping. I don't fill my house up with stuff. I used to kind of be one of those people who went to fulfill, fulfill myself and my feelings inside by buying things and trinkets and, oh, get a new TV or a new this or new that. And I realized that I was wasting my life paying for those things versus living my life. So then when I go out into the bush, I was taking less and less stuff, right? Like I was like, oh, something that I, I'm going to take with me that's always on my belt, always, is my Leatherman. I kind of have like these core items that really, really make my life really super easy when I'm out in the bush. Like I can do, I can do a lot of things, like live basically forever with these few items. And then, so that translated from survival, you know, is directly related to how I live my everyday life, right? Like I don't have a brand new truck because why? I don't need one. I'm got the best like looking, you know, guide truck around. It's all like dented and scabby looking and whatever, you know, with a big engine in it. Good for me. Um, and so, so that financial security, I think comes from, you know, a life of, of making it work with what you can afford and saving is like when you're going out into the, into the woods. Yeah. You buy the best gear that you can. It's not just about brand names and whatever else. It's about the gear that works the best for you and your situation and your skill set and your level. And then forget about the rest of it. Sean Alexander, aggressive legend. You don't get onto the cover of the world's biggest football video game, Madden, without being aggressive. Sean Alexander is an NFL legend, but his success went well beyond the field. Our conversation moved seamlessly between football, parenting, and the role of aggression in faith, and some amazing trash talk. You're obviously a man of faith. You just you you keep bringing faith and Jesus into every question because He's in and through your life. How do you? How do you look at faith and aggression being together or whatever your choice word is? Because many of us just think that faith is believing unrealistic things that science can't back up. That's that's not <laughs> faith, right? No. How, well, what's your take on that? How, how is aggression with your faith? I would say this. Um, if I took out the word aggression, I'm going to even make you even more scared. I would say that we make Ooh. so many words negative that ain't negative, like the word angry. Angry is not a negative word. It just means passionate, zealous. A person that was zealous about their faith, you could be like, man, I am angry to get this point across. You're just passionate about it. So if we take the word angry and stop being so scared of it, then we can actually know that this is just a word that means some intensity, right? And so people would used to come to me and say, hey, Sean, you're always smiling. You're enjoying life. 
I used to play football so angry. How do you play football and not be angry, not be like mad at somebody wanting to cuss somebody out or kill them? I'm like, don't get it wrong. I want to embarrass you when I'm on that field and I want you to, I, you know, and, and, and an unhealthy, I'm gonna give you a little, little tip. <laughs> I said, what is, what is the most craziest thing that you've ever said to somebody on a football field? Um, I got, I made this run and guy tackled me and I made another run and guy tackled me and I kind of got up and I kind of, I stood up, he was trying to stand over top of me. So I stood up to kind of make him fall. And I kind of took my hand out so and I said, come on, man, you know, your friend was here to watch me play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I want to, I want to take the soul out of people. You know what I mean? I want them to be like, man, like I am really nothing except what Sean wants me to be on this field. And I'd come into games wanting to, I'd want to make the other team wish that I was their running back. I want to be aggressive and very intentional about everything that I'm doing on that field. And part of it is making you wish that you was not playing against me. That is my posture. I think that you have to be very intentional as an aggressive. You got to be very angry for what you want to get done. Um, And I can smile at you the whole time, shake hands, love you, um, wish that you did well but whip the taste out your mouth the entire game. And that's, that's the posture that I have. And it's, I'm unashamed about it. And I actually try to teach that to everybody I've mentored, everybody on the field, off the field, you know, let's not grab titles that we don't really want. If you want to be a believer, let's go be a believer and be intentional about it. If you want to be a good football player, let's go be a good football player and be intentional about it and be very, very aggressive with it. Whip the taste out your mouth. (laughs) That is good, man. That is good. I think that's a problem with people of people of faith, people who align themselves with Christianity. We're, you know, we're into our platitudes and we're into our kumbaya circles and we're we're into our morality, but we're we're not pushing on anything. We're not taking anything personally. We're not yeah. we're not wanting to win. Do you, do you want to win? You know, and I find people like that. No, no, I shouldn't want to win because Jesus lost, didn't he? Well, he he lost one one bloody Friday. He lost that day, but he lost that day on a cross, so he would win two days later. Yeah, but he didn't even lose. He's still playing the game. Okay, but he—that's like—that's like like saying, "Hey, I'm going to run the ball. I'm going to run this dive play. That's only going to get me one yard." Knowing that we need fifty, so the next play I can fake it to the running back and throw a deep post. That's all he did. Okay, did he lose? No, he was running a play. Okay, yes, but he was nailed to a cross and he couldn't move. I mean, that's so what? <laughs> who's, scared, who's scared about? Who's scared about a cross? That's a play. I am. I'm scared about a cross. You're not stop scared being, about a cross. No, stop oh, being come scared. On. Oh, stop being stop being Captain Manly. Come on. No, no, no. I'm just telling you. That's part of like, so that's just part of the play. Like at the end of the day, like if you had to yep. die for a cause that you believed in, wouldn't you do it? Right. That's all a part of it. Like if we're going to be um, soft about parenting, if we're going to be soft about that, and then we're going to be soft about going to a cross, we'll be soft about that. We'll be soft about everything. And then we'll be like, well, man, I was going to be tough over here. No, either we're all in about the plan and all in about it all, or we're not. Like eventually, like you're right. saying, like okay, I'm, I might be weaker. I might not be as good at this part, or this might be a weak spot. But I'm not going to be soft about it. Lecrae, hip hop healer. Your assumptions about someone else are usually dead wrong. He's got Grammys, successful albums, millions of followers and fans, but hip hop superstar Lecrae was brutally honest about his life. It was stalled out and in trouble. He had to actually go to 
cryotherapy where he just went and the therapy was making him cry all day long. <laughs> That's not what cryotherapy was. He actually schooled me on it. Okay, but I don't think we included that little clip, but why would his life be stalled out? Because of the weight of trauma. He's done the aggressive work to chase healing, and he's offering valuable insights to that, and he's still trying to heal up. Check out this conversation from October of last year. This is where I want to spend most of our time on here, uh, is you're going along, you look like you have the world by the tail, you're coming out with a book, and like I'm expecting the title of the book to be how to live your dream, you know, <laughs> how, to, how, how, how to make it happen, how to, I, I don't know, but it is <laughs> on uh, something that is less weighty and heavy and actually less helpful than your actual title, which is Moving Beyond Trauma. Why did you choose that for this book to write right now? Well, people tend to believe in the fairy tale or the fantasy that once you hit a certain benchmark in your career or financial stability or whatever kind of goal you're chasing, that all of a sudden you find like a utopia. And, uh, and I wanted to kind of erase that myth for people so that they can be consistent in character development no matter what level they are in society to continue on the character, emotional spiritual, mental, relational health, regardless of where you are, because there's no place that kind of insulates you from having to take care of those things. What's your trauma been? I assume you're going to talk about in the book, so I'm not having you talk out of school, but take us in your trauma, brother. There's generally eight major traumas that people can experience. I've experienced probably five of them. And, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect and abandonment um, being some of the more prevalent ones that I experienced all before the age of 10. So it, it continued after that. But before 10, I'd gone through all of those particular things. And um, and so what I learned, one of my survival techniques or coping techniques was if I perform, I'll find affirmation and acceptance. And so I began just performing to be appreciated. And what ends up happening is that you end up in a performance trap uh, where you're you don't really know your true identity because you're you're constantly on. And I remember hearing Johnny Depp from Pirates of the Caribbean and many other amazing uh, things say that he he played so many characters that at one point in time he didn't know who the real Johnny Depp was. And I think that happens to us. We begin to amass success and affirmation and we don't know who we are. Uh, because we're just covering up, you know, all these wounds that have gone unhealed. And so that's kind of where I found myself. The sun is out, but it doesn't seem, everything seems bland and, and something's wrong. It's like a glaze is, is over, over my perspective on life. And I was walking in a depression and didn't, you know, didn't realize it. Well, a lot of people feel that or they go along like that for a long period of time and don't do anything about it. What 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 was it about you that you were able to go, hold on, I feel this and I don't like it. I got to do something. Because most people just keep powering on. They keep just, just yeah. keep drinking more. They just numb out whatever they can. What? Why do you think you were different to try to get help? Um, I, well, well, part of it for me is that I've always been a very um, 
I've wanted to be self-aware. I've always wanted to, to know what I didn't know. I wanted to know about my blind spots. I wanted to be, you know, vulnerable and, and, and I wanted to be a lifelong learner. So I, I think part of me that was wanting to, wanted to investigate, but as long as I can keep going, I think I was fine. I think waking up in that clinical depression it, it was causing too many problems in other aspects of my life. And so, so now I couldn't enjoy playing with my kids. My wife and I couldn't connect in the same kind of way. And it, and it was just, there was no enjoyment now in the pursuit of things. It was just like going through the motions. And, you know, if you don't enjoy it, it's really torturous. Like it's, if you can't find one place of joy, like I, drinking may have been the one little place I had and then even that was gone. It was just nothingness. So that, that really was the switch that turned on for me. Uh, I'm sure I'm saying stuff that's going to be in your book. I know you're not ruining yeah. the book for us. I'm just trying to woo people to go on their own journey here to make an aggressive move. Cause I'll tell you what, what the passive weenie yeah. boys and weenie boys, weenie girls do what the passive ones do is I'm feeling odd, I'm feeling strange, but whatever, I just keep powering through it. Sometimes powering mm-hmm. through it is a passive move. You're just doing what everybody else does. You're yeah. not you're looking, yeah. you're not doing deep inner work. You're not you're not pushing yourself. I mean, it's a it's a hard push to go, what is wrong with me? It's a hard push to have memories that people did to you that you really don't want to think about anymore. That's a, that's a hard aggressive push. Tell me why I should do that, Lecrae. Why? Why? Show, why? That sounds too hard. Well, you, you said it. I mean, one re, one thing is you said you said it's it's passive to not do that. And let me and, and that's a great point you made because you know if you're aggressive, if you're in pursuit of whatever it is, you know, you want to run a Fortune 500 company, you want to run for office, whatever it is that you may be in pursuit of, you're probably what I would call a speedboat leader. And speedboat leaders push through and plow through aggressively. But the fear is that you'll be passive and you'll be floating out there like a raft. And no one wants to be a raft, especially leaders. They, the raft just kind of is, is just out there, no direction, and, and it, it ends up wherever the water wants to go. But the, but the thing is, if you keep plowing and pushing through like a speedboat, you're going to run out of gas and you're going to end up a raft. Right. When you're out of gas, now you're just floating out there. And so the, the solution is to become a, a sailboat. Right. A sailboat requires work. It requires aggressive work, but it also means you have to be attentive to where the wind is blowing and adjust your sails accordingly. And that's doing the work of, you know, therapy or uh, family restructuring and reverse engineering and planning. And that's that that takes work. But it's way more rewarding at the end of the day. And you and you don't run the risk of just being a raft sitting in the middle of the water going whichever way it turns. It's 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 intuitive. And 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 so that's why I would say it's worth it to do that work, because you you end up a much more healthier version of yourself. You can get way more done. You can make it across the entire ocean that way. And you don't run out of gas and you're not left at the whim of the water. Dr. Francis Collins, America's foremost scientist and motorcycle rider. The most downloaded episode I've ever released was my conversation with Dr. Francis Collins, recorded at the height of COVID mania. Dr. Fauci reports to him. He's the director of the National Institutes for Health. He's the top scientific mind in the land. 
Dr. Collins had wise words that gave me hope. Even now, it's worth a listen, but you didn't come to this podcast to hear more about COVID. You came to hear about how the land's top scientist is also a motorcycle rider and a man of faith. I'm just hoping you're going to like me by the end of this because I am in love with you right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say some things and challenge some things. I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm going to give you the ability to make me look stupid. So I'm going to give you some straight, direct things, and, and, I'm, and I'm hoping you set some records straight. Before we do, let's talk about what's really important. Motorcycles. Let's talk about <laughs> you, 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 You're a big motorcycle rider. Tell us about that. Well, I started in college because I couldn't afford a car, and then I fell in love with these two-wheeled things that had motors and uh, kind of been riding, except when my kids were little, when I thought maybe it wasn't quite so responsible. But uh, right now, I'm on a Harley Road King Classic. It's uh, red. It runs really loud, and uh, (laughs) I, uh, on a nice Saturday afternoon, if I can find a country road, then I'm going to really have a great time with my wife on the back and uh, let the wind blow. It's, so so if it's running loud, then uh, do you have a stage one do, done to it? Or those of you who don't know, stage one, whenever you get a Harley, everyone thinks these are amazing machines. They can be amazing machines, but most guys, the first thing to do is stage one modification, which is pipes that are louder and they get uh, different fuel mapping. Uh, all this. Have, you, have you done that kind of stuff to your, to your bike? I was tempted, but I think my neighbors would probably not appreciate it. They're sort of barely tolerating the fact that there's a Harley in their cul-de-sac already, and I don't want to push it too much further. <laughs> well, well, hasn't anyone told you that motorcycles are dangerous? You're a medical guy, National Institute of Health. So how do you reconcile riding a motorcycle with being the director of the National Institute of Health? It sounds already like you're on the outskirts. Well, yes, this has been pointed out to me about a thousand times by people who say this is a bad role model. You're encouraging bad behavior. And yes, it is true. Motorcycles are dangerous. Believe me, I wear my helmet faithfully. I will never be on the bike without that. And I guess I'm pretty careful. I only had one sort of scrape, which happened to be on my honeymoon with my wife in the south of France, where we hit an oil slick in a traffic circle. And that was not pretty. But otherwise, I've never dropped it. This uh, this Harley has no scratches on it, and I've had it now for 14 years. Well, I th- I think that uh, that for me is one of the reasons why I want to I pay attention to you. Um, I respect you greatly. Uh, your book that you wrote on faith and science a number of years ago, which I can't remember the names of books anymore because I read on Kindle, and so whenever I read on Kindle, I don't see the you know the cover every single time. Uh, what was the name of that book, Francis? The Language of God is Lang- what it was called. The Language of God, and the subtitle was A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. So I, I just have such high regard for you because that book really spoke to science and faith coming together in a way that nothing I've ever read has. And when you're a guy who rides motorcycles, it tells me that you, you, you're open to a healthy level of risk. You're not you know, you're not, hey, let's all just lock ourselves in rooms and have airbags on all the walls. You're, 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 o- you're open to an appropriate level of risk. I, 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 I like that about you. It makes me be able to identify with you. Let, let's go back. Let's, let's go back to some of the precepts in the book and science and faith, because boy, there's a lot of, a lot of talk. It's, it just seems like people have swallowed whole the belief that faith and science cannot exist, that you either a person of faith who believes stupid things that can't be 
reasoned or you're a person of science that only believes what can happen in a laboratory? How, how do you see those things coming together? Well, it really is unfortunate that that's the message that has been sold to a lot of people. It's simply not true. Science and faith are ways of finding the truth. Uh, they ask different questions and they have different ways of getting answers. I like the, the particular metaphor that Francis Bacon put forward a long time ago, which is that God gave us not one book, but two. One of the books was the Bible, God's words, the book of God's words. I read it every morning. But he gave us another book, nature, the book of God's works, the creation. And we are allowed to admire that too and read about it and learn about it and be in awe of its beauty and its elegance. And why would you think if God gave us two books that they would conflict with each other? You just have to think about which one you're reading and what kind of questions you're posing to that. Another way of saying it is that science is really good at answering questions about how. How do things work? Scientific method will give you an answer to that. If it's been replicated a few times, it turns out to be right. And it's true. And it's not a matter of somebody's opinion. But it doesn't help you very much with the why questions. Why is there something instead of nothing? And why am I here? And why uh, do I have this hunger for something outside of myself, this longing for something spiritual that doesn't necessarily make sense otherwise? That's where you need faith. And I didn't start out thinking this. I was an atheist as a graduate student in physical chemistry, and at that point saw no reason to think that the why questions were even interesting. And then I kind of realized I was missing out. Do we want to go through life limiting ourselves to just one kind of perspective on how to find out interesting truths to interesting questions? No, let's have it all. Let's have the scientific worldview and the spiritual worldview, but let's be sure we know which one we're using at, to answer a particular question, because we can get tangled up if we get that part wrong. Well, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We didn't even get to my hilarious conversation with writer John Acuff, a history lesson on the Spanish flu with historian John M. Barry, or a two-part Q&A episode with sex therapist Emma Schmidt. So much good stuff, so little time, we just couldn't cover it all. There's more aggressive living coming in our third year. We're gonna take a few weeks off and we'll be back on August 24th with new episodes of The Aggressive Life. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.